0: Welcome back to the DealMakers podcast show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Maker show. So I'm very excited about the founder and also investor that we have joining us today. I mean, he's built a remarkable company. He's also invested in tons of entrepreneurs, and we're going to be learning quite a bit, and I'm sure that you're going to find his journey very inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Ron Gula. Welcome to The Dealmaker Show.
1: Hi there. Thanks for having me. How's it going?
0: So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. So you were born in Syracuse, New York. So how was life growing up?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Syracuse, New York. Uh, my father worked for IBM. He was a field engineer, and I got exposed to uh, mainframe computers and PCs at, at a very young age.
0: And also, you know, when it came to uh, resolving problems, engineering, I mean, obviously that's something that you ended up studying. So what got you into the whole problem-solving thing?
1: It was always interesting. I always like playing computer games, building my own computers and whatnot. Uh, my dad was also in the Air Force. I ended up going into Air Force ROTC and attended uh, Clarkson University in upstate uh, New York. I really just like solving problems—the the, the engineer in me, you know, whether it's a puzzle, an engineering design, or how do you handle an algorithm—I've always approached life like that.
0: And in your case, you ended up, um, you know, giving it a shot to um to, to to going like really to becoming eventually a fighter, a fighter pilot. But uh, you know, it sounds like you had a problem with the with high G's. So what happened there?
1: That's true. So when you go into the Air Force and you get a pilot slot, typically you have to go to your flight school class, and if you're the first or second, you might uh, get an F sixteen or F twenty two, that sort of thing. And I was lucky enough to compete and get accepted to something called Euro NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training, where even if you were the last in your class, you still got a uh, a fighter aircraft. Turns out when I went to school. I did not handle high Gs very well. I, I uh, literally little had the tunnel vision and all that, that kind of stuff. But what that really helped me learn is as we got into cybersecurity and information security, I could speak pilot. I could speak military. I could speak command and control. And that later became a very, very useful skill for me.
0: So so what happened with, the, with with the high Gs? I mean for the people that are, that are listening, what, what is that about? I mean probably the people that are listening that have seen the movie Top Gun and, and how they do like this crazy stuff and and what that puts the body through. I mean what what, what were you experiencing with it? Why, why couldn't you take it?
1: so when you when you're on a roller coaster, you might be hitting three G's, maybe maybe three and a half or four and you know that's what the general public feels. When you're in a, a, an airplane like that, you might be hitting six, seven, eight G's. I was actually only doing something really low, like four and a half, five Gs, and I was experiencing the tunnel vision. Now, like a roller coaster where you might go down and do a turn, it's a quick turn, if you're actually turning your aircraft around, you might be pulling Gs for five seconds, 10 seconds, 20 seconds long, and that's what causes the tunnel vision where you lose vision in the eyes, and what, you know, really what's happening is the blood's draining from your brain.
0: Wow. So um, as they say, one door closes and another one opens. And the one that opened for you is one that uh, you know really played a, a massive role in your career because that's you know basically what you have dedicated yourself to, which is cybersecurity. So how do you all of a sudden enter the cybersecurity world?
1: It was it was a couple steps. So when you leave the flight program, you know the Air Force wants to make sure you land somewhere good, and I was an electrical engineer, so I got involved in communications. I got to learn a lot about how telephones work. How uh, computer networks work, how how the internet was. Working. This was really when the birth of the internet was happening. Websites didn't exist when I was doing this in the early early nineties and whatnot. And I had a couple tours in the Air Force, and my last tour was at the National Security Agency, where I had read the Puzzle Palace and I had read the the Cuckoo's Egg from Cliff Stoll. And there were various groups mentioned at the NSA. I sought out a post to work there, and I eventually became a penetration tester where. My job was to test the security of uh, various classified and unclassified government and DoD networks,
0: and that was the immediate step for you to take a leap of faith and enter the world of entrepreneurship. So, what were the triggering events for you to say, you know, what I'm going to start this thing, and also starting it with who is your wife? So, I mean, quite a quite a journey.
1: Yeah, that's that's uh, that's well said. So, when I got out of the the service. I took a job with, uh, with BBN. BBN is credited for you know, creating the, the internet as we know it. And it was really in a government services role, which I'm based in Maryland. This is a very popular thing around D.C. where technical consultants you know, provide software services, mission support to various government agencies. And while I was there, I was rapidly developing all sorts of technology, precursors to intrusion detection work, precursors to a, a, a wide variety of stuff. While there, I got recruited to work for a cloud startup called U.S. Internet Working. I worked there for just, just, just under two years. And while there, I, my job was to defend the network from attackers. And I was working with some leading intrusion detection technology. It was internet security systems. And these attackers were bypassing it. And I came home one day and I asked Cindy, my wife, could we start a company where I was able to develop a next generation intrusion detection system? and we ended up founding network security wizards together and running it as a husband and wife actually i worked for her for that company
0: and one thing that is uh, really incredible there is that you guys were pushing that for about a year fully bootstrapped and then you ended up getting the company acquired i guess before we go into the into that process of of getting the the company acquired i want to ask you one thing here that that comes to mind and you know there is this book called the founders dilemma and on that book the, the, the author talks about, you know, what it's like to work with family members. And sometimes, you know, people become ineffective in that relationship because they don't want to hurt each other's feelings. Uh, obviously, in this case, you guys, you know, have been very successful working together. So what would you say are the ingredients behind that success? I mean, is it like some level of communication that you use at the office and at the home? or Or how do you go about that?
1: So a lot of communication I mean, any marriage, I think you have to have continual effort to you know it's not it's not easy. you got to keep putting stuff into it and then when you're doing work together, it's the same thing. you have to have that communication. How do you resolve problems? in our case, we like cigars, we like wine, and uh, you know we that kind of grew into uh you know being able to talk out different types of things whether. It's life goals, like what we want to do with this company, or should we hire one more person and spend you know some money and take risks together? So, I really believe that that is uh, something that we need to talk about more about. Now, it is a risk for companies; it is a risk for that uh, that you know people do fall out of favor and love with each other. But whether it's a husband and wife team, a father son team, two twin brothers, I've seen a wide variety of family relationships. And, you know, the ones that work great tend to work really great. And I'm really lucky to be with City.
0: That's amazing. Now, now obviously, for you guys, you know, fantastic outcome, you know, in the double-digit uh, millions and uh, fully bootstrapped. I guess, what was that process like of of going through a transaction? Because this was your first company to first company, first exit, you know, is is remarkable. So, what was that process like?
1: Well, there, there's a couple lessons we learned from that. So, so, first of all, we didn't raise any outside capital. And I didn't know we were supposed to do that. I thought we, you know, you're supposed to make a product, sell the product, you know, exchange that product for 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 capital from your from your customers, and reinvest that in the company. Right? That's kind of what I thought was was supposed to happen. So we never really raised any outside capital. And then, you know, we started looking at various economic development things, and it just wasn't Maryland wasn't set up for that like it is now, because the internet was something very new, cybersecurity was something uh, very very new. So we started getting offers from like name brand, you know, leading companies. We, we had a competitive product and we ended up taking a deal with Interis's networks. And it was sort of like a competitor to Cisco. Uh, it was a, a spin out of the Cabletron uh, a route switch company for, for people who are studying internet technology history and whatnot. And I always felt that network security should be part of your network. And uh, that was one of the big reasons that uh, that we went with that, even though we had offers from like antivirus companies and, uh, you know, newer startups that in the in the area that had raised more money.
0: So what kind of visibility do you think that gave you into the full cycle of starting, building, scaling, and exiting a business?
1: Well, at the time in Terrace's networks, I believe it had maybe a couple thousand employees, but it was sophisticated enough to have things like two-tiered channel support, uh, two-tiered support, uh, selling through the channel, you know, uh, things like, uh, you know, help desk in Ireland. So we were exposed to what I felt was a fairly sophisticated type of company that wasn't necessarily a hundred thousand behemoth person like a, like a Cisco or a Microsoft. So we got to observe kind of what for our taste, worked really well and what, what didn't. And I would kind of tell you if there's one secret to, to, to my success I've always I've had so much opportunity to kind of learn from different people and kind of take different things that I liked or didn't like from uh, situations that I was in. So there's a lot of stuff that Entterraces did that I was really, really happy about, and I actually brought a lot of those things to
0: Tenable. So then let's talk about Tenable, because you did your, as they say in a in a fun way, the vesting and resting, right, completing the acquisition, the integration. And then, as they say, an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So at what point do you realize, hey, I think it's time, and I think that this problem is meaningful enough for me to, to go at it?
1: Yeah, so the, the problem we solved with Network Security Wizards was detecting attackers on the network. And we would just report, hey, you had an attacker, and maybe it's in server 32, and you need to go fix it and respond to it. Tenable, I we wanted to start a company that would be a lot more proactive. That it would scan all of your assets, all of your computers, all of your websites, and give you a list of all of your potential problems, whether it was a compliance problem, whether it was a a hacker, whether it was a vulnerability and whatnot. And it turns out that the person who led the acquisition from Interacist to buy network security wizards, his name was Jack Hufford. So we developed a a really good working relationship and we had a number of conversations and uh, we decided to start Tenable Network Security. And tenable means obtainable and defendable, and who wouldn't want obtainable and defendable network security? And for folks who aren't necessarily in cybersecurity, this is a big problem. Uh, people will kind of patch all the computers, uh, you know, maybe secure the network, and then they go and they do their business. And maybe six months later, six days later, six hours later, something makes a change, and your network is now vulnerable. So you know, this concept of having a you know, obtainable and defendable network security was something that was really, really popular from day one.
0: So how were you guys making money at Tenable?
1: So when we started out, we had uh, with three founders. Myself, there's Jack Hopper and Renault Darris. And Renault was the founder of an open source project called Nessus. Nessus had a fairly large user community and Nessus was focused on the practitioner. I could show you how to plug Nessus into a network, do a scan, get a report, and it's all about you. If you want to take that data and bring it to the boardroom, you need a whole variety of other things. You need uh, compliance frameworks, reporting, maybe you want to do this in a continuous manner, maybe there's foreign language support. So we built a commercial company basically around the concept of using Nessus to do the detecting and scanning. Tenable calls it cyber exposure these days because now it means phones and cloud and many, many other things. And uh, so day one, we started making money by having management uh, software for NASA's and a wide variety of uh, commercial support for it.
0: I mean, in this case, you guys uh, did it the right way, you know, versus, you know, one thing that we've seen now in, in the market is companies that were doing very well, then they ended up being pushed to raising a bunch of money. And then now when this macro environment kicks in, then all of a sudden, the ones that were good companies, they're, they're not so good anymore, right? And it's now back to the cash flow uh, side of things. It sounds like you guys were, you know, very good on the cash flow side of things. And and you pushed that, you know, very nicely. So how did you guys have that in mind, you know, as 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 part of the way of of the execution? And, and yeah, tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, so we started this in the early 2000s. And for your listeners today... The concept of buying software and, and and owning that software is a very foreign thing, right? Everything's subscription now. But back in the early 2000s, you sold basically a perpetual license, and you had a residual maintenance So this concept of software as a service, which really hadn't caught on yet. So we started getting fairly large uh, uh, contracts from, from government agencies, commercial agencies. And we were able to, to, by the time we did our first fundraise, we were able to actually have $50 million in the Bank when we did our first $50 million investment from Excel Partners. And the main reason we did that is because we were kind of getting categorized as this like East Coast government services type of uh, solution. When in fact, we were an international, you know, we were actually on every continent, believe it or not, including Antarctica. There's people down there scanning, you know, networks and and the snow and ice and whatnot. But, you know, we wanted to really kind of break out of that. Plus, where we were based in Maryland. We had an issue that we couldn't attract talent to come work for us. Typical entrepreneur working for the NSA, working for the Social Security Administration, working for Northrop Grumman, working for you know Lockheed Martin, they're not going to leave and go join a 50-person company. They're going to view that as a very, very risky type of thing. So one of the reasons we did the fundraise was to look a little bit more uh, support to, to take some of that risk of joining us off. Anyway, we did that and we were really really happy with the outcome and the relationship we have with Excel Partners.
0: Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So, I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process, and it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super super difficult. So, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C, all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Trolling all uh, prior to going public, how much did the company raise? We, we raised a little
1: bit of friends and family. You know, we had, uh, you know, you're talking less than a few million dollars. I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it wasn't a whole lot. One of the benefits that we had is that from selling network security wizards early on, we were able to kind of fund the company when we, you know, when we hit a bumper here, when we had some cash flow issues, that sort of thing. A, a modern company might have a line of credit, possibly from Silicon Valley Bank, you know, that yeah. sort of thing today. Oh, yeah. but, uh, but in the early 2000s, you know, we were kind of floating that. And then once we got cash flow positive, it gave it, you know, it gives us really, really the uh discipline to kind of think about every expense and whatnot.
0: So, so so for you guys too, I mean, it was really incredible that the most of the money that 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 it was raised, you know, it was ultimately mostly secondary. So tell us about, you know, especially for the people that are listening, what is secondary and why did you guys do so much secondary?
1: Yeah, so the without raising a whole lot of money typically if you if you're not going to go start a company today we have an idea and maybe it takes 10 engineers and two years to build this we might go raise 10 million dollars build the product and before day one you know we, we've already got 10 million dollars on the books and um you know there's some valuation maybe we haven't even sold it at, at, at that point so that's a direct investment where the company issues stock now secondary is 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 different. Secondary is when you take the stock that you already have, and you sell it to somebody. You literally give them the stock. The company doesn't issue any new stock. Now they might pay more than what your stock is worth on paper, and that might give your company the a, a, a much higher valuation. But that also might take some of your employees and allow them to sell stock to buy a home, to buy a car, to pay off college. And we had that moment where we pulled uh, all of our employees together. We kind of told them what was going on. And we basically said, look, if you want to, you can sell uh secondary stock. And we actually created some millionaires that day. And, you know, and that was a very interesting time. And it's something I would tell anybody who's an entrepreneur founder, they should be aspiring to do that. Create a company that's so good that, um, you know, your employees are going to uh, benefit directly from it.
0: And also, what was the... What was the process, you know, that journey of going public? I'm sure that was, a, you know, quite an quite an amazing journey for you too.
1: Yeah, so to be specific, I I left when I was uh, CEO. Uh Amit Uran took over. He was previously coming from uh, the RSA Corporation and going back to Network Security Wizards, he had run a company called RipTech that managed the dragon intrusion detection system. They had a long history together and, you know, Amit me- Amit um, was hired to basically grow the company and take it, took it public. I got to be right there when we were ringing the bell on the NASDAQ, which was kind of cool. But uh, a lot of the hard work of going public like that, you know, there's a lot of different compliance regulations, a lot of roadshows you got to do. I didn't participate in that. So, you know, Steve Vince, the CFO of the company, Jack Hopper, the rest of the board, they take, they take a lot of the credit for for doing that, but setting up the company, all the work that we did, you know, over the past sixteen years while I was CEO and CTO was uh, you know, really built the platform to make that happen.
0: Now, in your case, you were CEO and CTO for sixteen years. I mean, typically people would break those uh, into two uh, different buckets and have you know other people coming in and, and taking that role. But in your case, doing both, I mean, that sounds like a lot of work and also like complete different work. So why did you take that on upon yourself?
1: Well, I had a lot. Of, I had a lot of help. And I think, uh, you know, the CTO position, in many ways, is a very public facing uh, position. And, you know, the technical brains of Tenable was Renault darrison Renault did a great job, not only keeping nessus at the leading edge of, uh, you know, whether it's a a Windows laptop, a Mac laptop, your iPhone, you know, some server that you just bought from Google and Google Cloud, Nessus was always like a year or two ahead of what the market needed. And a lot of that was uh, Renault's, uh, Renault's vision of execution of what we would fund, even like, like different types of research projects of that. So my point there is like, I had the titles and it was pretty cool to go to the, a bank or like the DoD and and, and talk fairly technically about what they were doing and understand their feedback. And those titles really allowed me to kind of have direct meetings with potential clients that are both technical in nature, but also with the procurement people who are like, okay, if we're going to spend money with, with Tenable, what is Tenable going to do for us over the next couple, you know, couple of years and whatnot? So I liked having both of those uh, titles. Now, a lot of times, if you have a technical founder, they're not necessarily super good at the business side of things, pricing things, marketing things. And I think over the 16 years I was, I was at the helm at Tenable, we had plenty of opportunities that, uh, you know, I, I'll just say that I learned from when it comes to like naming products or, you know, bringing things to market and whatnot. But it was really unique to have both of those titles. But I couldn't have done it without everybody else who was working at Tenable.
0: That's incredible. Now, Tenable, you know, I believe that right now the market cap is around $5 billion. So So uh, what an incredible journey. What a, an amazing, you know, feeling to be able to look back and to know that you've created that incredible amount of value, you know, all those employees that they have been successful too in their own way and their own nature. Uh, and tell us about, you know, at the, that point where it's time to turn page and, uh, you know, switch chapters.
1: So I had always wanted to do investing. I was very enamored uh with the process that we fundraised at Tenable. Uh so we had raised from uh, Excel Partners and Insight. And uh, you know, I was very impressed with their operations and what they did. But there's this concept of seed investing where you maybe invest a little bit, you give a little bit of advice, and you got series A's and series B's and whatnot. We did a few investments while I was uh CEO at Tenable, and you know, two of them did not go well. We lost money on them, and one of them was uh, was threat rate. it was actually uh, i mean Durant's brother Doug. and uh, we had invested in that and we actually had made more return on that because uh, they were acquired by uh, by cisco and uh, we said look we can we this is something i think we can do full-time and uh, so cindy and i said let's we're going to start a company we came up with tech adventures not not ventures but basically we are doing primarily investing under Tech adventures a little bit of philanthropy, we run these million-dollar competitive grant competitions in cybersecurity, and we do a lot of, I just say we're available to do a lot of policy work. We don't have a full uh, um, uh, policy thing or think tank, but we get get to participate in a wide variety of state and Washington, D.C. level interactions about cyber policy and cyber technology.
0: Why is uh, the cyber world so important to you, Ron?
1: Well, cyber, cyber is very interesting. I, I, would, it's, I don't think we're done yet. Like if, if we were done with Tenable, we could have retired, didn't have to cut. There's so much that we have to do as a society to fix cybersecurity. There's a couple things. One, the average person still doesn't understand how the internet works, how computers work, how their phones work. If they don't understand that, certainly our politicians don't understand that. And we live in a free society, so we have these other societies out there, China and Russia, that are not free societies. I think we actually have a huge potential to have big problems in cybersecurity, whether it comes down to, like, election fraud or personal privacy or, you know, are foreign governments going to be de- Whether Wherever you are on these types of policies and technology arguments, typically you're not in the trenches. So we have these big problems that are out there. So we want to be very, very active. With this, we call uh, this broader concept of cybersecurity, we call it data care. And we call it data care because I think the average person can understand how healthcare works. They probably have life insurance, they've probably been to a clinic, they probably get some sort of medication, but they also know that if they break their leg, they have to go to the emergency room. We don't have any of those type of things when it comes to the cyber side. So if you're thinking about going to a job in cybersecurity, you're thinking, you know, what is the right thing to do at a board level for cybersecurity? The average person just doesn't deal with all these different things. We're trying to make it a little bit more personal and a little bit easier for the average citizen to understand their role in this in this technology struggle.
0: And and going back to Tech Adventures, I mean, how how much how much investments have you guys done today?
1: So we've done, right now, we have about 30 active investments. We've had about 15, 16, I think, uh, exits that have happened and uh, actively involved with, with a wide variety of companies. We're only in, I think, one company where they, or like they're like they the only investor. Usually, we're co-investing with some of the leading cybersecurity funds that are out there. But we're very, very active. And we tend to invest in companies that we feel give you a secure by design outcome or bring what I consider traditional cybersecurity hygiene and hunting to new markets like uh, SMB and small, you know, small business managed service providers, that
0: type of thing. So, what does an active investor mean, especially for the people listening?
1: We we ask people five questions. We ask them, you know, what problem do you solve, and how do you solve it? And a lot of times, you know, people confuse those two answers, but they're two separate answers. We want to see, you know, what some sort of proof that uh, that they know what they're talking about. We want to see some sort of plan. If they're asking us for money for engagement, you know, what what are they going to get for, for that? But the fifth thing we ask them is is what what kind of outcome do they want? And this is really hard for people to do because if it's your first time at that, if it's your first time as an entrepreneur, hey, great. You might want to go change the world. Uh, that's that that might be not humil- humble enough, you know, for some of the startups. On the other hand, people could be very not aggressive, say, oh, you know, I want to grow a company and sell it the first chance I get, you know? Well, so trying to find a balance where a founder is working on a problem that not only can we help, but their vision of success is something that we want to support. That's, that's really, really hard. And, uh, you know, a lot of the founders we're working with have visions like that and we try to work with them every day.
0: So I'm sure that there's a lot of people listening right now. You know, the other day, for example, I was speaking with someone and he was like, Oh my God, you know, I, I was listening to your show with this uh, guest and that inspired me to start my own company. You know? and, and right now, I mean, the guy has raised over 100 million. So I mean, it's, it's, it was incredible to hear that. So without a doubt, there's people right now listening to us, Ron, that are thinking about starting their own company. So for those people that are perhaps, you know, having some thoughts you know, around, around this, what kind of tips would you give them around, you know, how to think about starting a company and uh, what should that be? Or what could that be?
1: Yeah, a couple couple tips. So the first thing, if it's going to be some sort of technology or software company, you have to kind of decide, are you going to do a services company or are you going to do some sort of product technology company? Now, the services company, you're typ- typically selling people, consulting, maybe a retainer, but your company is ultimately going to be driven based on the number of employees you have. Not the number of customers you have, the number of employees you have, because People are hard to find, you know, good people are hard to find, then you will be in demand. On the other hand, if you go to a technology company where you have to develop this company, you have some some costs and you need to kind of bring a technology to market, you have this risk that you need to develop your technology before you go all the way out. So I tell a lot of people, especially on the East Coast who've done services business, if you're comfortable with the mechanics of running a business, take a chance You know, try to work on a technology or some sort of problem that people are willing to pay for and do that. Because if you do that, you will be rewarded much, much, much more further uh, versus services companies. Most services companies are acquired for 2x to 3x of their uh, revenue, whereas product and technology companies can be acquired for much, much more than that.
0: Now, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world... You know, where where you and, and Cindy, your wife, you know, wake up in a world where the vision of GulaTech Adventures is fully realized. What does that world look like? Wow,
1: I think it would look like a lot like Star Trek, where you really don't see cybersecurity issues in Star Trek unless it's a plot device, right? A card never loses its password, or right? everything's voice voice identified and 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 whatnot. And that's kind of the future. I think we need to be building. I kind of think we're heading in the right direction. I still think we have a lot more threats to our success right now than, than, than going. Uh, you know, right now we recently had uh, the Biden administration put out the national cybersecurity strategy. It's a good strategy. I, I kind of describe it as, you know, we're the Titanic heading towards an iceberg and we're starting to turn right now. Is it gonna be enough? We'll see. Because every time we kind of do something right, we kind of bring more technology that, that compensates it. And past 20 years of my, my history of working with, with the government, we're always like five years too late. You know, when we have framework about securing computers, it doesn't mention phones. You know, if you read the the cybersecurity strategy, there's a lot of stuff in there it doesn't talk about. And uh, you know, these are things that are growing really, really fast. For example, artificial intelligence. So I don't think we're ever gonna get to the state where things are solved. Things are getting better, but it's really hard to count those things. So it's good thing, good thought exercise, but I don't think I'm going to wake up anytime soon, and the vision's going to be realized.
0: <laughs> Sounds like a lot of work ahead, Ron. Yeah. So, so I guess saying, hey, imagine if I was to put you now into a time machine. So we were talking about the future. Now we're going to talk about the past, but with a lens of reflection. I'm able to put you into a time machine, and I'm able to bring you back in time, perhaps to the late '90s, where you were, you know, thinking about how exciting, you know, this whole cyber world is. Uh, but you know that moment where you were thinking, you know, about Doing something of your own. So if you were to go back in time and be able to have a chat with that younger Ron and giving that younger Ron one piece of advice for launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now?
1: So I don't have a whole lot of regrets for the the career that, uh, that I've been lucky enough to have. So I look, if I was gonna go back in time, I've read enough science fiction, my my thing would be don't don't mess it up, right? Like I don't think there's there's probably, you know, ways that could have been done things quicker, better, probably been nicer to people, you know, but, but I don't really have a whole lot of stuff I would try to not do. So I would, I would say, Hey, look, enjoy it more. You know, there's, there's a lot of successes that that are going to be coming if you're successful. So make sure to uh, remember, you know, everybody helped you and remember all that, that, that type of stuff. And this is something I try to tell a lot of entrepreneurs. People don't plan for success often enough. They think it's hubris. They think it might be presumptuous. And I don't know how people can reverse engineer malware and, and and find zero-day vulnerabilities, which is amazing stuff that I can't really do. Yet they can't think about their finances for their family, you know, four or five years while they're founding a company to do these amazing things. So I would just try to tell people, you know, plan for success and and make it make it a reality.
0: That's amazing. So Ron, for the people that are listening, especially perhaps you know, those founders doing stuff around cybersecurity, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? So
1: we're really active on LinkedIn. So I'm Ron Gula, G-U-L-A. Our website's gula.tach, T-E-C-H. We've got a lot of different ways to contact us for uh, for fundraising, but the best way to hit us up is, uh, is over social media on LinkedIn.
0: Amazing. Well, hey, Ron, thank you so much for being on The Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today.
1: Hey, thanks for the opportunity to chat about uh, what we've done in the past. And I hope everybody enjoys staying safe in cyberspace.
0: If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business,